You're listening to Sidious Playground, a podcast by Leadership Foundations. My name is Rick Enlow. I get to be the host, and I'm here with Dave Hillis from the great city of Tacoma, Washington. How are you doing, Dave? I'm doing well, Rick. Good to hear your and voice. It is great to be able to be together, and uh, we have been talking in our, I think, last several podcasts about non-reactive leadership. And again, that does not mean non-responsive. It just means that we respond non-reactively. And, uh, and we've, we've had quite a few uh, examples and, and um, I guess uh, uh, references, especially to the incarnation and, and examples of Jesus. But one of the things that we wanted to do um, in this particular episode was to think about that idea in terms of um, police reform or policing in our culture and what a, a mm. timely, um, you mm-hmm. know, a kind of facet of what's happening in, in the whole area of uh, equity and, and race relations for sure. So mm-hmm. uh, how, how do you think uh, the non-reactive approach to leadership lens looks like in terms of police reform? Yeah, I, it's a great question. And uh, again, I maybe would just kind of pause here and say, I, if we knew the answer, right, um, right. you and I could become very wealthy men and, and, uh, and give uh, all kinds of advice to people. But I, I would say, you know, Rick, when you look at, again, something like the, you know, reality of George Floyd and, you know, the Breonna Taylors and others, um, I mean, again, there's a whole lot of factors that go into it, but you do sense that there is a kind of almost hyper reaction taking place. Um, mm-hmm. You know, you even look at the faces of the of the police and others. There's a there's a a glazedness, you know, a, a almost a yeah. not in contact with reality. And I think that is a is a pretty vivid uh, expression of what it means to be reactive. Um, and so I think whatever reform uh, is going to take place, uh, and not just in, in policing, but in you know, other parts of our society, it's going to be you know, slowing down uh, in such a way that we can begin to actually take account of what is taking place uh, before us and moving, as you said, from a reactive sort of reality to something that is now, uh, you know, much, much more, you know, responsible, uh, being able to account uh, for the things that are actually taking place for maybe some of the variables that aren't even at play in the situation at hand, but contribute, you know, to, uh, to the larger uh, context. Uh, and so I, you know, I think, um, you know the the debate is afoot, right, with regard to yeah. uh, policing. Uh, you've got, I think, uh, two sides, right, of of this argument. You've got the uh, defund uh, police completely, or do away with you know uh, police departments and some of the more um, you know uh, certain camps. Uh, you've got the other side, which is now more than ever we need to beef up you know our policing and yeah. uh, further reinforce them. Um, I think, and this has always been the case, I think with leadership foundations, you know, the, uh, you know, the answer is going to, you know, sit uh, somewhere in the middle Um, that yes, we need police, uh, but what we need is, is good policing. And uh, one of the elements I think about good policing uh, will be 
uh, moving it from this reactive um, sort of force to something uh, that is is much more on par with, with what does it mean to, you know, embed yourself in the community uh, and mm-hmm. form it from within. So, well, and I think both of those sort of extremes are both reactive. I mean, whether you're talking That's about exactly you know, right. eliminating policing is a reaction to, uh, you know, to what people have experienced. And then on the other side to, you know, become a militia mm-hmm. you know, is a reaction to, you know, the fear that people feel uh, by what's happening in some cases on the street. So both, both are reactive. And I think when we think about non-reactive, but we kind of get, we get hurt by the nomenclature or the, the language sometimes too, because instead of even, even the word reform kind of implies that, you know, it's just, it hasn't served a purpose or, you know, Mm -hmm. we have trouble reforming without Mm -hmm. thinking that, no, there has been um, a value added over time, but you know, things aren't the same. So why, why is this the same? So anyway, I think those are some of the interesting um, uh, pieces of language, but I know that when we come, when we get to uh, looking uh, theologically at this idea that, uh, you know, God is always, uh, always moving, you know, and, and mm-hmm. forever, you know, and like, in fact, one of your favorite, uh, phrases, Dave, and I know you probably already know this, but I'm just going to tell you right now. Like, well, if, if it is my favorite, is that, I must know it. <laughs> well, it must be, I don't know. I think it's your favorite, but one of the most common expressions that you use, and I think it's a great leadership expression is you say, moving forward. You use that Mm -hmm. phrase because you'll say like now, you know, okay, we know this, but moving forward, you know, and kind of, there's Mm -hmm. always this forward kind of momentum Mm -hmm. in leadership. And that is reflective uh, theologically of God's spirit. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the Bible even uses that, you know, that expression, you know, that God, his spirit is moving. Yeah. Yeah. And, uh, and I think that, um, that sort of, I mean, that, connects with um, what we talked about with even what James Allison has said about being non-reactive. Yeah. I, um, in fact, one of my favorite little phrases of, of James is that when the, uh, you know, the WW, you know, J, you know, D movement was going on, like, what would Jesus do? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah. James came in and said, that's, that's not the right statement. Uh, the right statement is uh, what is Jesus doing this notion that, mm-hmm right? It's active. It's living. It's right in front of us right now. So I, I do think that the deep theological idea is always for leadership foundations, uh, that you are in a city and that the, the spirit has already preceded you. Uh, and it's your job as best as you can to try to keep your eyes open and align yourself uh, with her work, with her activity. Mm-hmm. So in that sense, you know, you're, you're reforming all the time, right? I mean, it's, it's, it's this constant, you know, sort of, you know, moving and shaping and, and trying as best as you can to, uh, to watch that. You know, one of the things I think as well, um, you know, Rick, to keep in mind, because it's a tricky business. And so how do you know, for example, and this is a big, big principle on the Jesuits, you know, how do you know when you're responding to the the right spirit, you know, versus the wrong spirit. And this is why they place such emphasis on this whole idea of discernment. Uh, but there are some, some tells that I think you can be always um, sort of keeping your eye on. Uh, and one of the tells for me with regard to the good spirit, the Holy Spirit, um, is whether or not victims are being created. Mm-hmm. Um, and I, I think, 
you know, this, this notion uh, of, of God in Jesus, you know, being the forgiving victim, right. Mm -hmm. Uh, Frees us now not to ever, you know, make victims again. Um, That is behind us. So as, as leadership foundations are, you know, kind of trying to sit in a space like, you know, these two forces around police, what we're very mindful of is, you know, don't create victims, you know, as you're Mm -hmm. trying to reform a system. And if you are beginning to create victims, you can pretty much trust that you are not responding uh, to the right spirit. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, and and I I got a quote here from uh, James Allison. uh, And, you know, I always pay attention because my, my mom always told me, don't ever say always and only. And whenever James says that, I sort of underline it like, hey, James, what right. are you doing? But right. uh, he, he's, you know, he's trying to make a point here. And one of the things he said is uh, the meaning of the gospel, the life of God, the sense of the spirit is never to be found in reactive space. Just what mm-hmm. you were talking about. But then here's his always and only. It is always and only found in hard one space where rivalry has broken down and forgiveness emerges. And yeah. like you said, it, it, you know, he's saying uh, what reflecting what you just said, it's, it's not found where there are victims and uh, you know, and animosity. Yep. Yeah. 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 And it's, I mean, we, you know, I, I think we're going to have the good fortune here, Rick, in the not too distant future of having James on one of our city is playground podcasts. And this will be a conversation we can have with him. Yeah. But the uh, just, yeah, it's, it's, it's just, so hard even to kind of admit that my, my default to want to create victims mm-hmm. um, or to become, you know, a victim myself um, in situation after situation after situation. And so it's really been James's writing and thoughts that not only have helped me on the theological and in, with my own life, but in situations like, okay, what to do about policing, right? Yeah. Um, you know, his... Uh, the quote you just read gives me a kind of path into that space to kind of breathe a little bit easier, right? Not, not get worked up over, you know, who's yelling at who about what, and just say there, uh, there has to be a way uh, that we can uh, get, you know, a good situation moving forward. So, yeah. And I think especially, in fact, we could ask James uh, to do a whole podcast on always and only, I mean, because those are <laughs> pretty good <laughs> words, but you know, this idea of hard one space, you know, I think that's um, so interesting because I, you know, I'm uh, right there with everyone thinking, well, now what is the next step moving forward, you know, in policing, not only in our place in the world, but in cities and, mm-hmm. you know, and Hey, why do we have to have all this, you know, uh, you know, bifurcation and this or that and all this hostility. And then yesterday, um, I decided to allow somebody to uh, turn who was kind of waiting to get into a traffic pattern. And I stopped and waved them in. And the person behind me honked and shook their fist at me like, get going. And I immediately lost the non-reactive gene, you know, and I almost wanted to go create a victim, you know, and it was just, and I, I mean, yeah. it, was, it was so sad that, yeah. you know, I have all these ideals, but really when uh, something happens, um, yeah. I'm, I, I give up the hard worn, uh, you know, hard one uh, territory yeah. so fast. So yeah, so quickly. Yeah. So it's an important, important thing for us to ask ourselves because we have to police ourselves and we have, you know, the ability to, um, you know, 
but mm-hmm. to wander off our own, in our own way. So mm-hmm. I think this, uh, the conversation that, um, that we're about to have is going to be awesome because uh, we're going to invite uh, Noah Vasket, who's our trusted podcast producer. He's the one who takes all of our ramblings and he's uh, the guy. Yep. Yeah. He makes them sound like you, you know, so you can actually hear him. Yeah. But uh, Noah's not only uh, a podcast producer, but he's a, uh, you know, an LF staffer and, you know, and had a, amazing um, mind in terms of uh, his understanding of leadership and theology. Mm-hmm. Uh, he's going to have a conversation uh, uh, with a gentleman called Nicholas Sensley, who is in the middle of tackling this issue uh, of the desperate need for uh, police reform, especially in light of, uh, as you mentioned, things that have happened, uh, the George Floyd murder, Breonna Taylor, all the others, and yeah. this ongoing sort of call during this political season for either uh, you know, further, uh, policing and, you know, the, 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 you know, crime and law and order and that whole, yeah. that whole thing that we, that we hear about. So this is going to be great. And I uh, really appreciate Noah, uh, leading this conversation. Yeah, it's, uh, it's Nick is great and very articulate about this issue. And so I'm, I think it's going to be a great resource for our, our listeners. Yeah, well, thanks, Rick and Dave. Really good to be with you all. And yeah, as you say, I did get a chance to sit down here with Nick Sensley, recently to talk about police reform. Nick is a pretty remarkable guy, um, particularly with a lot of unique perspectives when it comes to policing, uh, the need for police reform and overall issues of justice, given his background. And before we hear from him, maybe just to share a little bit about that background. Uh, So Nick began his uh, professional career as a police officer in the Los Angeles area. Uh, grew in the ranks to eventually become uh, police chief. But on top of that, he has a 40 plus year uh, career in doing all kinds of work with police forces throughout the world, uh, really helping to reform police, to train police, to better serve the public good. Um, And also has done just a lot of overall organizational leadership and development training for all kinds of organizations, public service groups, uh, non nonprofits, NGOs, human rights groups, and um, and so just brings a lot of uh, really deep experience when it comes to you know not only what does it look like to run an effective organization, but even dialing in specifically to what does that look like in terms of policing. Um, and you know we started our conversation uh, really in him reflecting back on that forty plus year career. And being in this place where he was just kind of getting ready to to slow down, enjoy life, uh, kick back a little bit. Um, And so I'll let him tell that story. I started my professional life at at, at 18. And having turned 58, I was real proud to say that I've gone through my 40 years of the desert. You know, I've I've gone through my Moses years now. And so I've I've come of age. I've I'm, I'm finally reached a point where maybe I'll get due regard and respect and folks will perhaps begin listening to me because right. God has prepared me and has allowed me to maybe step onto the stage of being a sage somewhere in this world that would allow me to have due regard. I had no idea as to what that was, but I found myself feeling quite comfortable with the thought of it all simply because I, I, I really am thankful that I, God is fulfilling all of my needs in, in terms of, uh, you know, family life. The kids were comfortably out of the house and mm. uh, we, as my wife, Kim and I really had 
no need for us, quite frankly, to, to be engaged in, in anything. My consultancy that I've had for over 20 years is still uh, successful. And mm-hmm. uh, I just felt that maybe I could just float about speaking and traveling around the world, just pretty much doing what I want. <laughs> and the thought of it just really seemed rather appealing, actually. For the background of it, I've spent 25 years in law enforcement in California, worked my way from police officer to chief of police, worked in three different jurisdictions. And since 1998, I have been training police around the world on leadership, ethics, anti-corruption, and have pretty much made a, a name for myself among a number of nations that uh, around this issue of police conduct and uh, by federal, United States federal courts, uh, expert witness on police conduct and uh, professional standards and behaviors. And then obviously the, uh, the deaths of George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, Ahmaud Arbery, amongst many others uh, takes place. And there is this huge renewed call in the United States, at least, for addressing uh, the, the gigantic need for police reform. And um, again, you get the sense that Nick here is about ready to, to kind of put up his shoes and enjoy retirement. Uh, this happens, though, and the phone starts ringing. My phone began ringing uh, after the George Floyd uh, killing and emails started to flow in. And the fundamental question was, what are you going to do about this, Nick? My fundamental response was, well, I'm going to be a part of a voice of of action, but it's not like it's on my shoulders to to deal with it. But the question was pretty much being put forth as though, you need to take lead in terms of what are you going to do about the issue of police with this issue of police reform being called forward and a need to respond to it in a comprehensive way. So I began praying about this issue, really lifting it up, saying, God, is, is this that thing for which you have prepared me? Uh, is, and that was the fundamental question for me is, is this what those 40 years have been about? Because although I have glanced over my background, it's been pretty comprehensive in a number of sectors. I've put a great deal of time in the business sector, in the public service sector, in the nonprofit sector, in the world of foundations. I have been exposed and all of it been around the issue of, of justice and around the issues of service to the underserved and to the marginalized and to those who have um, been either pushed aside, set aside, forgotten about, marginalized, minimalized in some way, in somewhere in the world. And so it seemed that the question for me to bring for God was, is this the thing for which you have prepared me for over the course of these 40 years? Now, mind you, I have been doing this in the context of my own mind and in my own prayer. And I had not even opened it up to Kim, my wife, to engage in that conversation. 
um, because I was a little bit afraid as to what she might say in response to it. <laughs> so as I said one day, literally in the living room, in the quiet of the room, Kim walks in and she says, what are you going to do about this issue with regard to police reform in America? And my honest response was, who did you just get off the phone with? Who told you to say that? <laughs> because it just didn't seem fair to me <laughs> that she would ask that very question that others have asked. And Kim had, if you know Kim, you would understand that that is not her, her style. <laughs> um, to challenge, um, to challenge me to sort of get going and get moving on stuff. She typically knows that I'm, I'm very outward and aggressive about getting engaged in things and then bringing it to her for her input. So it was really quite the response for me to hear it from Kim. And so that was very much an answer to get going. So you do really get a sense there uh, from Nick that he uh, is experiencing this call in his life to step in and do something. And you do get a sense, you know, Nick is uh, certainly a person of faith and certainly does see God at work in his life. Uh, and so in light of in light of what he feels like uh, this tug at his spirit, he uh, kind of just puts himself out there and says, I'm going to I'm going to start this uh, this movement. Um and began uh, the creation of an organization that came to be known as the Institute for American Police Reform. And there has just been this tremendous response to this concept of addressing police reform in America, one from the perspective that police reform is in fact, that police are very essential. And we mean that very clearly, I don't believe that there is any space, any opportunity, any necessity to, quote, be rid of policing in America. It, it just doesn't make sense. Uh, but at the same time, I believe that there is a need and a great opportunity for comprehensive and sometimes dramatic reform of policing, and in some cases, very dramatic reform of policing in America. But it needs to be done from a, a very comprehensive perspective. And so Afnik has been uh, in creating and developing this Institute for American Police Reform. And, you know, he'll talk about it here in a second, but um, you do get a sense uh, for somebody that is very deeply grounded in knowing what good and uh, what really poor policing looks like, that any sense of reform uh, is going to have to take consideration of the whole. And so he'll talk a little bit about these five pillars of police reform that Nick really thinks is the key to actually having uh, a police system that is reformed in a way that actually benefits communities. And so he'll talk through these, uh, these five areas, um, covering everything from, you know, law and policy, uh, the need for accountability, actually having standards and training at the national level in, in the United States, 
and uh, community education. And then lastly, that I think, you know, leadership foundations would give a hearty amen to is that leadership development really is important in developing and reforming uh, police throughout the country. So, uh, yeah, let's listen in and hear him describe that. And when we look into the context of my experience, my background, what you see in the five pillars that I've proposed uh, is, is dramatic, quite frankly, because when you look at reform and policing as it has been proposed thus far, it generally focuses on two of the five areas of reform that we have proposed, and that is standards and training, and in some cases, that areas of accountability. What we are looking at is reform in law and policy. We're gonna look at issues such as qualified immunity for policing. We're gonna look at what it means to authorize policing uh, at the state level and local level. And we're gonna look at the issues of accountability, this issue of qualified immunity and to whom police are actually accountable and to the fact that it's really easy for police officers to leave one state and hop and move over to another state and some of the issues of the background to be forgotten and not paid attention to. Uh, the chairman of my board is a uh, pretty well-known well known oncologist and uh, he, he, he brought the question to me, Nick, let me, let me get this right. A police officer goes to a police academy for three months and then goes out onto the street and is trained for another three months or so. So in a total of maybe six months, you have a person with a license to kill out on the street. And yet I went to four years of medical school and five years of residency before I could write my first life or death prescription. So after nine years, I can write a prescription that has life or death implications. But after six months, and maybe with a high school education, a person can go out on the street with the powers of life and death. And then realistically, they can go out onto the street after three months with the power of life and death in their hands. It seems to me there's something wrong there. Something's not right. I go, clearly, there's no argument to that. So we look at the issue of accountability. We're looking at the issues of standards and training. Uh, we're looking at certification, nationwide certification. Why is it that a doctor or a lawyer can be disbarred or lose their certification across the nation or a police officer who has more day-to-day life and death uh, power in their hands uh, can just skip and go to another state or maybe just to another department within the, the state. Uh, we're going to look at the issues of uh, leadership. As, you know, I know that this is a big issue, a big part of my background. I have been training uh, leaders around the world for over two decades, uh, fundamentally focused on issues of, uh, of ethics. And then we're going to take a look. Uh, well, we're certainly going to engage the community around there. It's been a fifth pillar. You can do as much reform as you want. It can be very comprehensive, very well done. But if the community doesn't buy off on it, if the community doesn't validate it, if the community doesn't accept it, then the police reform is very well useless. And so, uh, and, and that it brings us to the picture of accountability as well. And then, of course, there's the overall picture of, of the why around it. And when it comes to the why behind police reform, Nick has a set of life experiences 
that really uh, positioned him well for this, leading this conversation around uh, police reform in the United States. And, and that in particular is that he has the life experience of being black in America. And he can reflect on that both in terms of uh, growing up in the United States as well as a black man on uh, the police force and leading a police force. So Nick is really able to thoughtfully reflect on the deep need for police reform, particularly as it relates to racial injustice and how unequally and inequitably policing is done in the world. So you'll hear him talk a little bit about that, both based on his own experience and what he's seen uh, in his work on police reform, both in the United States and around the world. I can, I can go into stories as a black man in America of my policing, my experience from policing from, from a teenager, you know, growing up in New Orleans. Uh, our assumptions as kids were if you get stopped by the police, you're going to get beat up, period. There's, there's no question about it. Um, you know, and I have stories of being stopped I have stories of seeing my brothers. I'm the youngest of eight. And so my brothers and sisters were well entrenched into the lives of the 50s, uh, 60s, and 70s. You know, so I, I have images as a child in the 60s of, you know, still the, you know, blacks and dogs are, are, are not allowed uh, signs. I have images of the police coming through the neighborhood, laying out the, uh, the black youth and just, uh, you know, face down on the ground and just walking up and down with the German shepherds, nipping at their heels just for what they call GP, for general purposes, so that at the time, they wouldn't go and join the Black Panthers. So, of course, what did those Black youth do? They went to join the Black Panthers. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and so it's, um, there. I can help redefine issues of systemic racism in America. I can, I can, I can help you to understand what that means. I can help you understand what white privilege means in a way that is very different from what is out there in the mainstream. I don't, you know. So there, there are a number of discussions that we can get into in a long-term scope um, that I think. I think there is an imbalance in the way that we use these terms that are out there. Um, you know, there, there, you will hear me say with a great deal of passion that, yes, I believe there is systemic racism in America. Yes, I believe that there is white privilege, but you will find that I don't define it in ways that most people uh, utilize uh, that, that term. And in, in, for instance, white privilege, I think for the most part, the way that's being used in the general mainstream is pretty well unfair to, to whites in America. Uh, and, and I think it's inappropriately used in the, in the context. Uh, an example, a uh, very quick example. I'm walking, I live now in National Tennessee, where there's open carry. I'm, and I always give real stories. I have enough life behind me. I don't use makeup stories. I give real life stories of, of my own. I'm, I'm walking out of the auto repair shop where I just uh, pick up my vehicle. All whites inside the lobby of the auto repair. Walking through the door, I bump into a white male coming through the door who has his Glock very openly uh, shown on his side. Bump into him, we look up at you know each other, and it's like, oh, pardon me, excuse me. He walks into the shop. No one in that shop raises their heads or even looks at the fact that this guy's carrying his Glock, open carry, and bumped into me walking through the door. I turn that around as a story. What if it were me as a black male walking? Now, by the way, I can carry a firearm open or concealed anywhere I want in America. 
Uh, but what if it were me walking in the door with um, with my mask on and uh, open carry? I bump into that white male coming through the door, and uh, it's obvious, it's known. Do you think no one in that shop would have, none of the white uh, folks within that shop would have not looked up and at least taken attention and at least followed the, the path of me and where I was going and what I was doing in that shop? Is there anyone that thinks that I would not have gotten attention? Well, it's highly unlikely that that would have been the case. To me, that's what I call white privilege and that there are certain things that I as a black man know that I can't do as freely and as openly and without any attention being drawn to me that um, a white male, uh, for instance, can do without even thinking about it, without even being concerned about it. I mean, that is the privilege of a freedom, of a certain state of mind, of a state of certain condition that exists. issues really come to bear when we're looking at how the police would respond in a similar way when they're looking at a black male walking into a neighborhood or walking into a particular uh, community. Those are the things, there, there's, there is a poverty bias that I know goes on within uh, policing as well. You know, the way that police respond in an economically deprived community versus a wealthy community, you know, brings in issues of poverty bias, which we don't often speak of in terms of the context of how police respond. All of that is to say, my friends, is that we have our hands full with this institute that we've uh, put on. But I am, I just feel so blessed with the people that have come in around me in this, it is just the affirmation that I receive from God. I, I, I have no doubt from God through the people who have stepped up, wrapped themselves around me, the organization, the universities, the law firms. I, I got to tell you, I am still so overwhelmed that I'm not quite sure how to process what I have experienced over the course of just a few short months. And then lastly, what I really appreciate about Nick's call for reform and his way of thinking about police reform, and I think this really comes back to Dave and Rick, what you have been reflecting on as far as what it means to be a non-reactive leader and yet still respond in light of the crises that we're seeing amidst our world today. You know, he would he would describe what most of the responses uh, for the need for police reform being related to uh, knee-jerk reactions from activists, from politicians. And he would really argue that at the end of the day, a knee-jerk reaction when it comes to police reform uh, is not only not helpful, but it can be uh, really, really hurtful. And so uh, you'll hear him describe, you know, (laughs) really what reform looks like once we get beyond our very often tendency to just uh, react. I wish that I could say that the knee-jerk reactions are going to stop. And, and I think that was a big part of the request 
for me to bring together a group to do something comprehensive to get on it with a sense of urgency that we can maybe get a, a, at least catch up to some of the knee-jerk reactions that are already out there. Um, so chances are we're going to continue to see that sort of thing go on with, um, you know, because politicians always feel like they have to do something. Um, and, and usually it's a surface something that messes the beneath the surface a necessity of, of, of real change and, and problem solving. But I do believe, you know, our approach is going to be to go to, you know, we're not going to try to fix individual police departments. We don't have the resources to never have the resources to do that. Our report is to go to states, the governor's offices, to attorney general's offices, to mayors and city councils as a part of this reform so that we can do it comprehensively. We can do it thoughtfully. We're going to bring in research, very comprehensive research. I've got, a, I've got more than 15 lawyers with deep experience directly assigned to me along with three large law firms. We're going to try to do this well. We can't abandon law and order along the way. I, I hate using that term because law and order has been bantered about in and of itself as a political tool and terminology. Mm -hmm. So what I would prefer to say, we can't abandon uh, societal wellness uh, in the face of anger and, and rage. So uh, I, I just really, I just really pray that reason will prevail and while along the way, we will not uh, see police departments and city councils um, abandon their, their responsibility to help preserve community uh, wellness. Uh, I think the other part of the, uh, the obstacle in terms of maybe, you know, the, the who, again, it's more of a generalized thing, will be with uh, those who are resistant to comprehensive long-term reform, the governors, the attorney generals, the mayors and city councils who we have to go to, who, are, who will be forced to accept that there's a cost to this, not, not, not to pay for our work, but a cost for what they will have to do in order to bring this, the policing up to the standards that it needs to be brought. Hey, honestly, policing by all right doesn't really deserve to be called a profession unless there are appropriate uh, and universal uh, ethics, canons, and standards of discipline. Mm. If you pull up the old dictionary and you look up the word professionalism, you'll see that it is a, a group that adheres to standards of ethics, canons, and disciplinary standards. And that's not necessarily true with policing as a whole. So that's Nick Sensley on police reform. And uh, again, the name of the organization that he has begun to develop is called the American Institute for Police Reform. Uh, you can check out their work more at AmericanPoliceReform.org. And again, a pretty extraordinary guy uh, that really uh, is both incredibly positioned and called uh, to this very important work of police reform. So, uh, Dave, Rick, I'll turn it back to you. Wow, what a wonderful conversation with Noah and Nick about this incredibly relevant and important mm -hmm. area 
of uh, police reform. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean, and, and one of the things that I, I was reflecting on listening to uh, to Nick, um, and this will be a, a, another, I think, topic that you and I'll talk about at some point, Rick, but is the way that he has kind of threaded the needle between, you know, these two sort of almost warring factions in, uh, in all things uh, police reform and uh, his sensitivity to that, uh, you know, as a former law enforcement person himself, he understood it. Well, uh, but really looking for what we oftentimes in leadership foundations talk about as a third way, you know, or the or the radical middle. Mm-hmm. Um, and the other thing that's interesting to note, Rick, is that we've got uh, a number of leadership foundations. Uh, the ones that come to mind is Dallas, I know Lexington, uh, that are actually working in this space already as local leadership foundations, uh, really trying to be again a bridge uh, to the you know city obviously that we work in into the police department, which is a part of the cities that they serve. And so uh, maybe at some point we can uh, bring them on at some point and talk about some of the really wonderful things that they are, are understanding moving forward. So. Yeah. Well, I think the, 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 I, I like that idea because I, I do feel like the, the reactive approach to leadership is just to talk about something during a, you know, a crisis, but that mm-hmm. to have this, ongoing so that in a year we're still talking about police reform as you know pieces of it are coming together i think is is mm-hmm. reflective of what we're what we're saying here and uh so i, I once again appreciate a chance to think these thoughts and uh yep. and speak these words on this on this podcast our podcast with a we're calling it a new segment but we've done it a few times so it's not new but it's our, our closing segment where um, we we ask for an idea uh, or a recommendation that would help us more clearly see the city as a playground and it could be you know film a tv a book show a poem a practice or an insight um, and uh, guess what i call on you dave and yeah, what would you, you, know, what would you this, recommend? Yeah, and this this actually is my first time, so I'm I'm a little bit nervous here, Rick. But uh, I'll, I'll see what I can do. <laughs> I trust you. Yeah. Um, well, you know, in some ways, um, there are so many uh, things that I could recommend. But I I decided that my recommendation is I wanted to recommend something that uh, had such a profound effect on me. Uh, with regard to uh, this whole idea of seeing. And so it's a film and it was a film that I ran across many years ago. And Rick, I don't know if you've seen it, uh, but it's called Searching for Bobby Fisher. Mm-hmm. And yeah, it's uh, it's just a wonderful little film. In fact, I had a chance on vacation this summer to uh, watch it for the umpteenth time again, but this time surrounded by grandchildren. And uh, they uh, they absolutely loved uh, loved the movie, but there there's uh, this theme that happens through the uh, through the film with little Josh Raitskin, who is this chess chess prodigy. Actually, a true story, by the way. And he mm-hmm. uh, discovers that he's got this this kind of chess savant uh, talent in himself, and it's it's the story about he begins to develop that talent. Uh, as an aside, uh, there's two chess mentors in his life. There's uh, the character of Ben Kingsley, who's the formal chess master and trying to teach him, you know, all the ways that uh, you're supposed to you know, play proper chess. 
And then there's Lawrence Fishburne, who's this kind of street chess guy that is breaking all the rules. And uh, one mm-hmm. of the little side parts is to watch these two mentors vector into uh, to little Josh's life. But in particular, he uh, is being trained and he can't figure out this move. And so Ben Kingsley's character uh, wipes off the table, you know, just removes all the chess pieces. And then you just hear his voice, you know, over and over again, don't move until you see it. Mm. And little Josh sits back and says, I can't see it. You know, he says, don't move until you see it, but I can't see it. And then one more time he says, don't move until you see it. And there's just this little flick of his eye and Ben Kingsley says, he sees it. And the father who is kind of playing a stooge almost says, sees what, you know I mean? There's, you know, yeah, yeah. this, um, but the key, interestingly enough, for Josh to be able to see it was the pawn. Uh, it wasn't one of the more powerful pieces. And I, I think, Rick, for me, that has helped me probably more than anything I know uh, in terms of seeing the city well, is see it from the place of powerlessness, not power. Mm-hmm. Um, that's going to give you your clearest sense of what is really going on. So. That is my recommendation. I yeah. love that movie. Um, yeah. So what a great reference. Yeah. In fact, that's causing me to uh, uh, want to dial it up again because it's been some time. So thanks for that gift, Dave. And again, uh, thanks to uh, Noah, Nick, and uh, their assistance in helping us see what's happening uh, in the city in terms of police reform on this episode. If you have any questions, comments, or you just want to, uh, you know, give us some better ideas than we have. Uh, feel free to shoot us an email at info at leadershipfoundations.org. And so until next time, uh, farewell, Dave. You bet, Rick. Thanks. <laughs>